Well, friends, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1 this morning. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, we'll be looking just a couple of verses near the end of the chapter. If you, if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we'd also love to give you one. We provided them, should be in arm's reach of where you're sitting, either on the back of a pew or back of a chair, and uh, that is our gift to you. We would love for you to take it and to, to, to read it and to give us the chance to talk with you about what you'll find there and about what you'll hear this morning in the next bit of our time together. If, you, uh, if you're using one of those pew Bibles, the place to find the section we're going to look at this morning is on page number one. Think you can manage it? Page number one is where you'll find Genesis chapter one this morning. What do Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, and Yo-Yo Ma have in common, you might ask? Well, you weren't asking that? It's actually not the, the, the setup to a bad joke. It's a serious question. Mark Zuckerberg, of course, is the tech prodigy who founded Facebook as a college dropout. Managed it all the way into this unprecedented cultural powerhouse that it is today. Became one of the richest men in the planet uh, along the way and quite literally changed the world. You might say ruined it. At the very least, he changed it. Elon Musk is the force of nature behind the company that finally figured out how to make electric cars mainstream. And meanwhile, on the side, while he was at it, basically created a rival to to NASA, his own space private space program. And then there's Yo-Yo Ma, not quite as wealthy as the other two fellas, but way more beloved. Uh, He's a cello master, right? He's played uh, about everything you could play on the cello, and some things nobody ever thought to play on the cello before, and along the way earned just about every award you can win as a classical musician, and some awards most classical musicians never would win. He's got a Presidential Medal of Freedom around his neck. And won himself along the way a place in the heart of music lovers everywhere. What do these three guys have in common? Well, they're all rich and famous. That's not what I have in mind. Every single one of those guys, just like every single one of us in this room, has a belly button. That's what they have in common. That's really what I meant to say. (laughs) Every one of these guys has a belly button. Before they were world-changing titans of tech and industry and culture. Before they were able to even practice their trade or, or for that matter, learn their ABCs. Uh, Before these guys could, could say please and thank you. Before they could even open up their eyes or open up their mouths. Their lives depended completely on a nourishment they didn't ask for, couldn't pay for, and did nothing to deserve. There is no, guys, there is no such thing as a self-made man in this world. This uh, preaching series is a series on what it means to be a human being. We're trying to anchor what what we believe about humanity in the first three chapters of the Bible. The first three chapters of the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis. I recently saw somebody say that one of the most important things to know about what it means to be a human being, you can learn from looking at your own belly button. I don't know whether you like to look at it or not. I don't know whether you've even thought about it in a while. But if you want to know about yourself, you might take a look in the mirror when you get home. There's a lot of truth in what that fellow said. And our text today points us to that truth. Something you can find all throughout the Bible, but that's especially clear right here at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. To be human is to be dependent God designed us this way on purpose. He didn't mean for us to go it alone. He didn't mean for us to do it all. He meant for us to be limits 
to be limited rather, and to, to look through our limits to help from the outside. I want to read for you from first, the first chapter of Genesis, picking up in verse 29 and verse 30. If you found that text now, I want to ask you to stand with me if you're able in honor of God's word while I read. Genesis 1.29 says this, And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Guys, this morning what I want to do is simply make one point, one simple point, and then show you three wonderful life-giving implications of that point. One simple point, three life-giving implications. Here, point number one is the one simple point. God made us to need him. God made us to need him. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about uh, the Bible's view of human life, that it's not like anything else you'll find anywhere else in the world. That of all the things that he made in this world, humans alone are created in the image of God. We've said that that status, being in God's image, comes with a special relationship to God, but also a special responsibility from God. And in Genesis chapter 1, the chapter builds like a, like a wonderful song, like a theme that builds and builds to a crescendo. And that crescendo is, is God's decision to make Adam and Eve. We talked about Psalm 8, where, where David steps back, looks at what God has done in creating humanity the way that he's created it, and just marvels in his song about this good gift. He sings about the fact that in this universe of of massive stars of almost unbelievable power, a universe in which God himself hung our sun and our moon, a universe where God is completely responsible for all of it in its vastness. God has chosen to crown humans with glory and honor and set them up in the highest place on earth. That's amazing. But we got to keep reading. We can't stop with this plan to create human, humankind in, in, in his own image. We have to go from verse 28 to verse 29 and see that God says, I have given you every plant yielding seed, you shall have them for food. Yeah, it's true that humans have incredible capacities. And it's true that humans have been given a unique and wonderful work to do in this world. And it's true that if you look Around our world today and all throughout history, you will see an incredible track record of accomplishment. Humans plant crops and write music. They build bridges and design video games. They teach other people to read and perform successful heart transplants and send rovers to Mars. Humans are incredible. You won't find anything else on earth doing what humans do. But, but at the end of the day, underneath it all, just like every beast of the earth, just like every bird of the heavens, 
just like, well, verse 30 puts it, everything that has life. Every human depends on God for its food. What we need to know about ourselves before it matters that all the different things that set us apart from one another is that we are united in being needy. Before I'm a, an Auburn fan and not a Bama fan, I've said before. Before I'm a Southerner and not a Westerner, a Northerner. Before I'm an American and not a Frenchman. Before I'm a man and not a woman. Before I'm a human and not a cat or a dog. Before I'm an animal and not a plant. Before any of that, what matters is that I'm a creature and not the creator. The most fundamental thing to know about yourself as a human is that you're not God and you depend on him for everything. Friends, the, the, the point is really simple, but it reverberates all through the scriptures. You'll see this everywhere. You look when you learn to look for it. The Psalms are full of songs singing praise to God for his status as the one who gives and gives and gives to those like us who need and need and need. Listen to what Psalm 104 says. You cause, speaking to God, the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth. Yeah, we work the ground, but the Lord is the one who gives the harvest. Or Psalm 145, the eyes of all look to you. You give them their food in due season. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Or, or back to Psalm 147, that was our call to worship this morning. He, talking about God, he covers the heavens with cloud, prepares rain for the earth, and makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. And his delight, the psalmist says, is not the strength of the horse or his pleasure in the legs of a man. He's not looking for what he can get out of this world. He doesn't need to be paying special attention to the strong. He just takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. In other words, in those who look up to him for the gifts apart from which they can't live in this world. That's what draws him in. Friends, after God gives humanity this unmatched dignity in the world, and before sin ever entered the picture, right here in Genesis chapter 1, God promises to feed his people. And that means he has designed us to need him. Now that simple truth has huge and wonderful and life-giving implications for how we view ourselves and for how we view God and for how we view one another. And what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning is just work those implications into your heart and mind like, like working a ball of dough. Three huge life-giving implications of this simple truth that God made us to need him. Here's implication number one. Implication number one is this. None of us is self-sufficient. God made us to need him. Implication number one has to do with how we see ourselves. None of us is self-sufficient. None of us has it all. None of us can do it all. We are and always will be limited creatures who depend on help from the outside. Uh, the fact that you've got a belly button is a reminder it's a reminder of the sheer fact that you're alive because somebody else is alive first. You are alive because of somebody else's body from whom you drained food and energy before you had the power to swallow. As somebody else has put it, we all pass out of one womb and then into another one. 
out of our mother's womb and into the womb of the biosphere with a climate that's suited to us, with oxygen that we breathe in but don't pay for, with rain that falls on us just like it did this week to give us, give us water and, and, and sunshine that shines on us without asking, without us asking, to, to, to give us energy and food. This is a, this is a baseline truth, but it's something we are always going to be tempted to forget. Just how much we depend on help that we can't pay for and didn't even ask for. I think those of us who have grown up here in America may have special temptations to forget that. Some of the earliest stories we learn, stories of the frontier, they celebrate self-reliance, you know, the self-made man, the the opportunity that's out there for anyone with with the the moxie and the courage to go grab it and the strength to build it up for themselves. I'm a sucker for old movies about the old times, always have been. One of my favorites is a really sad one set in Civil War era of Virginia called Shenandoah. I wonder if anybody else here has seen that movie. Shenandoah features Jimmy Stewart as the lead, playing an old farmer, a patriarch of sorts over a family of farmers who all work the old family plot. And, and in the middle of the heat of the Civil War in Virginia, this family thinks they can still just go it on their own. They're still trying to just carve out a place for their own private lives stick to themselves, stay neutral on the cause of the war, and stay out of the violence for as long as they can. This is how they've lived. This is how they want to live now. And at one point in the movie, uh, they sit down for dinner, and Jimmy Stewart's character rises up to offer the blessing over the meal, and this is what he prays. Lord, we cleared this land. We plowed it, sowed it, and harvested it. We cooked the harvest, And it wouldn't be here, and we wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We work dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel. But we thank you, Lord, just the same for the food we're about to eat. Amen. That's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, maybe he plowed it up, sure, but he didn't put that dirt there. He didn't fill it up with nutrients. He may have sowed the seed, but he didn't make that seed. He didn't give it the ability to grow. He may have leaned into the seasons and what they offer, but he didn't make the seasons occur in order just as they always do. He didn't decide when would be a good time to plant and when would be a good time to harvest. That was all just given to him. He didn't hang the sun. He didn't send the rain. And there's no doubt that he would have worked dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel, but the things he had control over, I mean, they were just basically nothing compared to the things he didn't control. And it's easy from our perspective to look at that and just sort of chuckle at it, to laugh at that moment. But I think, friends, it is way easier for us to fall into the trap of self-reliance, especially given how far we are from the production of our food. I mean, we, we buy our food from the same places and with the same money as we buy our toilet cleaner and our deodorant and our breath mints. Our food just comes to us as a commodity bought and paid for for the most part. We don't look at the seeds in our fruit and think, yeah, we can plant these next year. Maybe we'll get to eat next year too, just like we're eating right now. In fact, we buy seedless watermelons just because of the inconvenience of having to spit them out when we eat. For these and so many reasons, it's easy for us, friends, living now, where and when we do, to lose sight of the fact that we are still at a baseline dependent creatures who are not 
self-sufficient. And when we forget that truth, when we forget that we are by nature needy, we're the ones who pay the price. I recently read a very helpful book by a theologian at Covenant College over in Chattanooga, a guy named Kelly Capick, and the book is called You're Only Human. A really solid book about human finitude. That just means being limited. The fact that God made us needy. Why that's a good part of his design. Not an accident, not a product of sin or some sort of brokenness in the world, but what he meant all along. Uh, Capic spends a lot of the book pointing out examples of how we in the modern world tend to forget that we're limited and that we can't do it all. Because so much of our lives now, so much of the society we live in is geared towards helping us overcome our limits and do more and more and more. But, but he helps us to point out that denying our limits is only hurting us. I mean, think about, for example, our relationship to work. Centuries ago, work followed close with what's with what has been called contextual time. There were things about time that were out of your control that you had to lean into. You know, you had daylight, but only for a certain amount of time. And then when it was dark, work was over. You had seasons that affected what you could do and when. And it mattered when you could get the help you needed from neighbors nearby. You had, time affected what you could do. But now, for us, time runs together a whole lot more. I mean, I had blueberries with my breakfast yesterday, and it's February. They weren't very good. You know, I'll have to wait for June or July to get the good ones, but I had them. I guess there, there's some payoff to the fact that time is just sort of melded into one big mass. But I think the costs far outweigh mediocre blueberries in February, because think about it. I can get work done at 10 p.m. on a Saturday night as surely as I can get work done at 10 a.m. on a Wednesday morning. All I need is a computer screen and an internet connection and a place to sit. It's always possible to be working. And because it's always possible to be working, we can live with this kind of nagging sense that we always ought to be working. That if we're not, there's something wrong. That if we're not, we might not count for much. Think about productivity in general. Forget like what you do for your day job. Just the, the sense that we ought to be productive. That we ought to be getting more done. There are so many tools available to us right now to help us get more done in life. We got apps to remind us of everything. We got apps to organize all our ideas and to-do lists. We've got apps to track our physical activity and show us how many calories we've been burning. We've got apps for everything. And with all these productivity tools that we've got at our disposal, along the way... We're developing higher and higher expectations of how productive we should be. Because if we're not productive now, with all these resources in our hands, whose fault is that? Capic talks about all the time-saving devices we've come up with over the years. You know, from the car to the airplane to the vacuum cleaner to the dishwasher, from the pencil to the keyboard... All of these incredible inventions making things easier and easier and easier and more efficient. But he also says, studies have shown that it's not like all this time you're saving just turns into free time. You know, it gives you more chances to just sit back, prop up your feet, and read a good novel. No, it, it just reshapes our expectations for how much we ought to be able to get done and then heaps shame on us when we feel like we haven't done enough. It's great to have a washer and dryer, so it doesn't take a whole day to scrub clean just a couple baskets of clothes, Capic writes. 
But now, he says, we expect that clothes will be laundered after a single wearing and that people should have enough clothing in any given week that they don't wear the same thing twice. Meanwhile, we start our days with to-do lists that would take a team a week to pull off, much less than finish our days having failed again, feeling at best disappointed and overwhelmed at worst over all that we didn't get done. Does that sound familiar to you? You living like that too? There's an intense pressure on us that's only growing year after year to do more better. Meanwhile, our bodies are no less limited than a human body ever has been. We still depend on food, even if it's more convenient to get a hold of. We still need to go to sleep, even if we could technically be working all night. We're still aging with pros and cons that come with every stage of life. We're still, in other words, guys, we're still the limited and dependent creatures God made us to be. Still. And none of us is self-sufficient. We won't be able to thrive as humans in this world unless we accept that God made us with limits. I wonder if this is striking a chord with you, if it's resonating with your experience, if it wouldn't be helpful for you to just, maybe even this very afternoon, stop for a bit of a reality check. If you're feeling overwhelmed by life, let me suggest just a couple of questions you might ask yourself and consider with a friend. Here's a question you might consider. If that's what you're feeling, you're feeling suffocated by it, you might ask yourself first, what stage of life am I in right now? Because every stage of life is different. And every stage of life comes to you from the providence of God. God has you in the stage of life that you're in right now. That's not an accident. And with, with this, this stage of life that he's put you in, there are unique challenges and there are unique opportunities. What about yours? Being a high school student is way different from being a graduate student. And those are both different from being early in your career trying to find your footing in a new job. Being single is really different from being newly married. Both of those have implications for your calendar. Your capacity with a baby at home is different than your capacity as an empty nester. Uh, but then again, your capacity at 25 is very different than your capacity at 65. At every stage in your life, you'll be living with different kinds of limits that just come with being a human who is not self-sufficient. What stage of life are you in? And how should that affect your expectations of yourself? Ask that question with a friend. Here's another one. What core responsibilities has God given you in your life right now? I don't mean what all have you said yes to. <laughs> that list is going to be long. I mean, what has God given you to do based on what God has told us in his word about what he prioritizes? If, if you're married and have children, God has given you responsibilities in that situation. His, his word speaks to those responsibilities. There's help there for knowing what your priorities are for the time that you have those relationships in your life. If, if you have a job, remember that being made in the image of God is a calling to work in a way that honors God and that serves your neighbors. Your job is a set of responsibilities that God has, has given to you. It's important to prioritize it. If you're a member of our church 
As a Christian, God has put you in a body that, that depends on you, a body that has everything it needs to survive and to be healthy, but only because the hand works together with the elbow, works together with the eyes, works together with the toes. You're one of those. Without what you bring to the body, the body won't be functioning properly. That's a core responsibility. What does it look like to prioritize it? Make a list of the core responsibilities that God's Word prioritizes for your life in this particular stage and then see what's left over. What time have you got left? What money? What margin? There's a lot of good things that you could do that will have to stay undone. That's okay. God made you finite. You are needy. You are not self-sufficient. And that's not a problem. It's not failure. It's not sin. In fact... The sinful thing would be to carry on living as if God didn't make you limited, needy, not self-sufficient. Accepting our limits is part of accepting the goodness of God's design of us. And this leads us to implication number two. Implication number two. Number one is, none of us is self-sufficient. Number two is, God is all-sufficient. God is all-sufficient. And the limits God made for us are not limits meant to hold us back, but to draw us near to Him. There are a lot of people out there calling for resistance to what modern society is doing to us. Thank, thankfully, that's, that's the case. You don't have to look too far to find people talking about drawing better boundaries or learning to say no or how to fight distraction and live in the present and protect time for self-care. But the Bible tells us you, we won't find any freedom walling ourselves off within our limits. That's not the way to respond to the fact that we can't do it all. Our limits are always meant to push our focus beyond ourselves and up to God, always. To the God who, who made us and is not limited like we are. The point of Genesis 1.29 is not only that humans will need to eat something to survive, but that God would be the one to provide for them. That's what he promises in this verse. You shall have them for food. I have given you every plant. Part of what makes God God is that he doesn't need anything. But he's, just, he's free to just keep giving and giving and giving and giving. He made us needy so he could meet our needs when we look to him. And he loves that. He loves to give of himself. Think of him in Genesis 1.29 here as coming to Adam and Eve with his hands open and, and full. Not with his hands open and empty. Not coming to them saying, pay up. I gave you life, now you pay me. But I gave you life, now let me support you in your life that I've given you. And what he offers is completely free always. We might have a hard time remembering that we're not God's that our limits are, are there whether we like them or not. God never has a hard time remembering that. I love Psalm 103 for this reason. It assures us God does not have our memory problem. Listen to what Psalm 103 says. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He remembers how he made us. He remembers 
that we're needy. And so like a good father, he's just compassionate. He sees our needs and he supplies them over and over and over because he's loving. If if you've come here this morning wanting to learn more about what it means to be a Christian, then one of the main things I I want you to know coming out of this morning is that what we're hoping for through Jesus is perfectly consistent with how God created humans in the first place. What we're hoping from, from Jesus just fits perfectly with what we believe is true about us always and the way that God made us. We were made to depend on God, to trust Him and His ways for us. But instead, we've treated our lives like they're our own, as if we haven't gotten every breath from Him, every meal, every good gift that we've ever enjoyed. But, but just as God has responded to, say, Israel's forgetfulness and grumbling by offering to feed them with bread from heaven in the wilderness day after day. This same God has responded to us by sending his own son Jesus to live and to die for our forgiveness. You get the forgiveness Jesus offers you the same way that you get your daily bread. Not from some sort of exchange, you know, where you offer to God something that that, that gets him in your debt. But only when you come to him empty-handed, opening your hands to receive grace from him to meet your need, not, not offering to pay him off. There's just grace upon grace upon grace in Christianity from the beginning to the end. All we have to do is give up on self-sufficiency. To admit that, that we're sinners against him and can't get by without his grace. And when we admit that, when we come to him for what he's promised to give us, well, his word says that he'll never turn anybody away. He'll give you exactly what you need. And friends, for those of us who are, who are trusting in Christ this morning, what we've got in front of us is a daily battle to remember that we're limited so that we can look to the one who isn't. To look to him for what we know we can't provide on our own. I want you to think about Psalm 121 as a, as a model of what it looks like to accept that you're not self-sufficient and to depend instead on the one who is. Psalm 121, flip over to that psalm. The psalmist writes, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Think of this verse as the prayer of one who's reached the end. Who has nothing more to do. Who only has the strength to look. My help, the psalmist says, comes from the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. This Lord is all sufficient. Look at verse 3. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. There are really good reasons that for all of Christian history, two of our most important Christian practices have been prayer and rest. Prayer and rest. And I think about prayer as this direct reflection on how clearly we see that we are limited and God is not. And I'm not talking here about what we say about prayer or what we affirm is true about prayer or what we read about prayer in the Bible. I mean, I mean our actual prayer lives. Our prayer or our prayerlessness 
is this clear glass window pane into our hearts. It exposes what it is that we're trusting in, what we really think about ourselves and about God. I, I am most often convicted on this front when I realize how long I've been stewing on something that's troubling me. You know, how long I've been playing out conversations in my own head or even talking things out with other friends. How often it, it's causing me to take deep breaths you know, or stare off into the distance or, or struggle to fall asleep at night. When I experience things like that, what I've learned to realize hopefully as my Christian life moves on more quickly and more quickly and more quickly with every passing day, what I've learned to realize is, is that I'm confronting my limits in those moments. I'm learning the hard way that I'm not self-sufficient in those moments. And staying put in my limits rather than looking beyond them in those moments is what keeps me spinning in my head and keeps me having to draw deep breaths and keeps me struggling to go to sleep at night. Those are symptoms of limits that are still self-contained, that have not channeled me up and out to the God who isn't limited like I am. Those moments are calls to prayer. Rest is another core practice. Always has been for God's people. The practice of Sabbath was, was a gift given by God to his people Israel in the law. And at that time, the way that it looked was a, the seventh day of the week, our Saturday, set aside for no work and Everything that happened in that day was supposed to be strictly limited by laws from God. And, and now, living on this side of Jesus' coming, we don't follow those same laws. They aren't meant for Christians in the same way they were meant for Israel in, the, in those days. Because of Jesus, we no longer have to follow those same practices. But, but the principle that was up underneath that practice, it's still just as true today as it ever was. The principle behind the Sabbath was that, that God's people look to God to provide for them. That God's people are not their own, and they're not on their own. The, the, the principle of the Sabbath was not just about taking a load off. It wasn't just about decompressing a little bit every week. It, think about the principle underneath the practice of the Sabbath day as a challenge to an assumption that sits deep in our hearts. If I don't work, I won't eat. If I don't perform, I'm not worth anything. If I don't do more, it won't be good enough. If I don't keep pressing, I'll only fall behind. If I don't look after me and mine, who will? The Sabbath was a built-in reminder to Israel that when they sleep, God doesn't. That the one who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. You can rest because he doesn't. Sometimes I think we are tempted to see the opposite of work as idleness or laziness. Like if you're not working, it's because you're wasting time. And laziness is an issue. I've been guilty of it. Maybe you have too. I, you'll have to do a little bit of your own heart work to know what you need from what I'm about to say. But, but here's what I want to say. The opposite of work is not laziness or idleness. The opposite of work from the perspective of the Bible is, is rest. That's an active thing. Rest is this, is this decision to set aside my working 
and to trust in God instead. To say, you know what? I'm not sure how it'll all get done. I don't know what the outcome will be. I'll trust the Lord to provide. I wonder if it wouldn't be helpful to you to to spend some time even today, maybe over lunch, talking with friends about where you specifically have trouble letting go. About where it's hard for you to trust the Lord with something. And I wonder if you couldn't look together for a specific practical way you can choose to limit yourself just to force you to look beyond yourself to Him. If there's not a practical way you can build into your day or your week a time to say no to effort, to the relentless working to do more, and to trust the Lord with the outcome. Friends, there's one more implication I want to show you from what we've seen. This one simple truth that God made us to need Him. These three huge life-giving implications. None of us is self-sufficient. God is all-sufficient. And now the third. God cares for us through one another. God cares for us through one another. We are part of His delivery system for His goodness into our lives. If you zoom in on Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, you see God feeding His people directly. He gives them food through trees with fruit and seeds to keep the supply chain going. But, but if you zoom out, if you look at the full sweep of what the Bible says about how God takes care of us, what you'll see is that normally God doesn't just feed people with bread dropping down out of heaven. Normally, He meets our needs through giving us one another for support and care. When God designed, here's another way to say it, when God designed us to be needy, God was also designing us for community. He was designing us for one another. You see this pattern immediately come out in chapter 2 when God designs not just man but woman. Immediately as the story unfolds, we see that, that one man on his own wasn't enough. God intended that these first humans rely on each other and not just in marriage. Then when, when God gives his law to his people, Israel, it's just, it's just chock full of instructions for how they're supposed to take care of each other, especially the most vulnerable among them. And then when the church shows up on the scene, In the New Testament, in Acts, in the very first chapters of Acts, we see God's word going out. We see God's spirit coming down. We see people hearing the gospel and responding to it. We see them gathered into local churches. And then what do we see them doing? Acts 2.44. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, breaking bread in their homes, They receive their food with glad and generous hearts. We see a community that's cared for through God's grace, working through people who love and take responsibility for one another. What we've been saying all along is that we're dependents. We were made that way, made to be needy. And we can't get by without what God provides to us. But but we need to know. We, We can't get by without what God provides to us through each other. That's why, that's why when we join our church, when you become a member of Edgefield Church, we're really intentional about the care that we're promising to give and to receive from one another. We have a covenant full of promises about how we'll love one another as part of this church. 
And in that covenant, we promise we're going to live together in Christian love, meaning we'll just share our lives. We'll open up what's ours to, to the needs of the body. We promise that we'll watch over each other, that we'll pray for each other. We promise that we'll bear each other's burdens and share our resources with one another. Think about our covenant as a church as, as based on what God has taught us about ourselves as humans. We are finite and dependent creatures. We need help to get through life intact. In other words, we need what the church is designed to give us. But here's the key. Here's the little dose of realism that all of us need to take with us from this morning into our relationships with each other. If we're going to have any hope of caring well for each other, of giving and receiving the kind of care that we need from each other, if we're going to have any hope of that, It's only going to be because we remember that none of us is self-sufficient and God is all-sufficient. We'll have to remember that to protect ourselves from being disappointed or from being exhausted. Take disappointment, for example. If you're a member of this church, you are a member of a church full of finite people. God created every one of your friends to be dependent, just like you are. That means God, as God designed your friends, did not make them to be an endless supply of time and energy. And that means, in a community like this one, you're going to be relying on people who will, inevitably, at some point, no matter how bad they want not to, they will let you down. That's going to happen. It's guaranteed. It's not if, but when. And sometimes, when you feel let down by your community... Maybe even hearing the words of the covenant that I just mentioned about bearing burdens together and sharing life together. Those words can actually make what you're feeling worse because that's not your experience right now. And that's just an awful feeling. It drives you further and further into yourself. It makes you more isolated. And it makes you more in the posture of one who's stepping back and kind of evaluating your community. Noticing its flaws rather than enjoying its fruits. But remembering that your friends, that every member of the church you belong to, is a dependent, just like you are. Well, that helps to take the edge off a little bit. It helps you remember that the language in a covenant like ours is just, it's always aspirational language. It's always language about what we want to be for one another, about what we are promising to, to, to seek for one another through God's help. But there will always be gaps because all of us will always be limited. Remembering this truth about how God made us helps us to be more gracious to one another and more grateful that God isn't limited like his creatures are. That even the limits of our community that may fall short in caring for us are only meant to drive us up and out to God who is the only all-sufficient one and doesn't have the limits that we do. Remembering the truth of this morning will will protect you from disappointment in this community. It will also protect you from exhaustion because well as bad as we may want to give care to others as much as we want to be there for everybody who needs us as much as hard as we may try to be that guy or that woman if we aren't able to meet our own needs by ourselves we certainly aren't going to be able to meet everybody else's needs by ourselves there is always going to be more need to go around in our community than we ourselves have resources to go around. None of us can do it all. And we have to remember that God has put us in a body that doesn't just include us, 
precisely for that reason, because he knows we can't do it all. And he knows the hand is going to need the foot, is going to need the toes, is going to need the ears. And that's going to help us to remember that we give what we can to one another. We hold back nothing to protect ourselves. But at the end of the day, we can't provide everything that everyone needs. We won't be able to do it all, and that's okay. Because as Paul promises in Philippians chapter 4, ultimately, in our lives and in our church, it is my God who will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me now that the Lord will help us to trust him Father, we do look to you and to you alone to supply every need because we trust that you have made us needy on purpose. We want to accept the way you've made us and look to you through the limits you've put on our lives. And we pray that as we do that, you would supply every one of our needs in each one of our lives and in our life together as a church. We thank you for Jesus whose mercy is so rich, whose prayers for us go up all the time, who lives never to die again, and who is our hope for every day and every step. We pray to you in his name. Amen.